0: Well, good morning, Exeter CRC. It's a privilege to be with you this morning and to share the word of God. And uh, I'm actually going to be sharing uh, a passage in the Bible that's very important and valuable to me, and has been extremely convicting for me. It's uh, from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. I don't know if you've anyone has heard of the term adrenaline junkie or thrill seeker. According to Google, an adrenaline junkie is a person with a compulsive desire for excitement and adventure. And the example Google provides is someone who has no concern for their own personal safety. As you think about that, you might think to yourself, yeah, I kind of fit that bill. Or maybe you think, I know someone who fits that bill fairly well. When I think of adrenaline junkies, I think of the videos that we can find or see on social media. The first thing that comes to my mind is a certain video where a guy is laying on top of a skyscraper, and his buddy is holding on to just his hand over the edge of that skyscraper, just hanging on by his fist. I think of those people that get on wingsuits and jump out of planes in between mountains, or people that go bungee jumping or skydiving. Or people who do tombstoning, which is an activity in the UK where people jump off the edges of cliffs with no regard for what's below in the water and they jump straight as an arrow into the water. Many of these activities are extremely dangerous and it makes you wonder why in the world would you do an activity like this if it's this dangerous? And the answer is for that small burst of adrenaline. That adrenaline is what motivates many people to do these risky behaviors. Today, we're going to talk about a parable that encourages risk-taking, but not risk-taking for the sake of an adrenaline boost, risk-taking for the sake of the kingdom. In fact, Matthew's gospel is very much focused on the expansion of the kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, he focuses a lot on Jesus's work in bringing about and inaugurating the kingdom. And Jesus, when he preaches in parables, is often referring to the kingdom of heaven And up until this parable, Jesus has talked about the fact that no one knows when he will return and the kingdom will be brought to completion. Only the Father knows. Jesus also says in another parable that we as Christians, we who claim to believe, need to be ready for his return. We cannot be caught off guard. In this particular parable, Jesus teaches about what we are to do while we wait for his return, while we wait for the time of the kingdom to be fully Completed. It's with this in mind that we can turn to the text, starting at verse 14. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, "'You wicked, lazy servant! "'So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown "'and gather where I have not scattered seed. "'Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, "'so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. "'So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. "'Forever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance.'" Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many of us have heard this parable a variety of times. The scene opens with a master who is about to go on a long journey. And before he does this, he decides to take his wealth and split it amongst his servants that he trusts. And he does this based on each of their abilities. Now, Luke's account of this parable suggests that the master instructs his servants to make a return on the investment they've been given. In Matthew's account, this reality is implied. Now, the amount he gives is not pocket change. The NIV translates the Greek word talenta to be bags of gold, but it's often referred to as a talent. And a talent it amounts to 20 years' full-time wages. So to the first servant, he's given 100 years of full-time wages. To the second one, he's given 40 years, and to the third, he gives 20. Now, we know the story. Two of these servants double their investment, and the third buries his money in the ground. Now, ordinarily, when we look at a text, we tend to go through it verse by verse and explore what each verse refers to. Today, I'd like to look at the wicked servant first instead of the good servants who are mentioned before the wicked servant. This servant who's only given one talent is actually afraid of his master. He has the idea in his head that his master is a hard man. Now this could be translated as rough or harsh as well. He accuses his master of reaping where he has not sown seed. He believes that his master is dishonest. And that he expects too much from his servants. He believes that the master will punish him if he loses the money he's been given. So he buries it. He sees himself as a victim of a bad situation. The truth is, in that some sense, this servant was actually acting quite wisely. The rabbis of his time would have told people it's not good to lend out money and charge interest, that goes against the law. It's not good to carry your money with you because you would likely get robbed. So, the best thing you can do with your money is bury it in the ground. It's actually a wise and prudent thing this servant has done. However, the master doesn't agree with the servant's approach and calls him lazy instead. He punishes the servant on account of his victim mentality and his fear-based reaction. At first, we read this story and we may be tempted to side with this servant. And this, this master, he seems kind of cruel. He, he seems kind of intense. He's expecting a lot from his servants. But the truth is, all indicators in this passage revealed that the master is actually very kind and gracious and trusting to give his servants this much wealth. We can see in how he interacts with the other two servants that it is clear that he is kind and generous. You see, this wicked servant is guilty of three things. Misjudging the master, operating out of fear, and being Lazy. If he truly knew his master, he would see what an opportunity lies before him and take advantage of the opportunity and get a return on his investment. If he truly knew the master, he would fear his master more than he fears the world and fear his master in a way that leads to relationship. The master shouldn't have worried so much that the world would steal the money, he should have feared his master in a way that leads to relationship. He should have known his master's character. But instead, he plays it safe. And as a result, the master shows the servant the very thing the servant was afraid of, the very wrath he was afraid of. He takes the talent from him, sends the servant away to a place of darkness and despair, and severs the relationship with the servant. I have a confession to make. Though I am a youth pastor, I really dislike roller coasters. They freak me out. I don't enjoy them. One year, I gave to peer pressure, which is not a good thing for a youth pastor to say, but I said I would go on all the rides any student wanted me to go on. So naturally, being teenagers, they're like, well, let's get them on the worst ride at the time, which was the behemoth. So I get on this thing, and we're going up, and I'm just thinking to myself, this is stupid. Why am I taking this risk? I'm hearing these clicking sounds. I'm wondering if the wheels are going to stay on the track. I'm thinking to myself, is the structural integrity of this thing such that I won't die? Like, what are the odds here? Not the best things to think on a roller coaster. I'm looking at my my lap, and I'm like, there's this tiny little lap restraint that's holding me on this ride, well, we're going really fast speeds at really high heights. Like, how trustworthy is that thing? Knowing my luck, I'll probably fall out and die. And then, you're on the ride, and at points, you're looking at the track ahead, and you can't see it, because you're going over such a steep curve, you're like, okay, did we get off the track, and are we now careening towards our death? So I couldn't decide the whole time, like, should I keep my eyes open, or should I keep them closed, because neither felt very good. I really didn't enjoy it. I'm not a thrill-seeker. Ta- uh, uh, thrill I'm not a risk-taker. I, couldn't understand why anybody would take the risk or even enjoy something like that. And the truth is, we as Christians have a tendency to do this with our faith as well. We have a tendency to play it safe. We have a tendency to do the wise and prudent thing. However, God didn't give us the gospel message and the secrets of the kingdom to bury them in the ground. Too often, we, just like the Pharisees, and make no mistake, this parable in some ways is directed at them, we, too much like the Pharisees, are more concerned with our religious behavior and how we appear instead of being focused on mission and sharing the gospel. We have a tendency to prioritize moral behavior, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's very good to live morally and to live wisely. But we have a tendency to prioritize good things over better things. And our calling is to build the kingdom and be a part of its expansion. And there may be a variety of reasons why we react this way, why we play it safe. Maybe we have false ideas about God or poor theology. Maybe we believe God is being cruel by forcing us to share the gospel message that we've received. Maybe we don't trust God's power enough to believe that he can actually work through us to share the gospel message. We in the Reformed camp may take hold of the theology that God can bring the elect to himself without us in such a way that we're not obedient, that we're not obedient to spreading the gospel because we believe, well, God can do it without us. What do we need to do? Sometimes we come up with false ideas or excuses so that we're not required to double the seed planted in us. Yes, it's true that God can bring the elect to himself, but for some reason, God allows us to be part of that process and he wants us to be obedient to him in sharing the gospel with the people around us. Maybe it's not just bad theology. Maybe we, just like the servant, fear what other people will do. We fear the world too much. We're scared that if we take the risk and share the gospel, we will face persecution. We might fear that we'll lose friendships or be called a bigot. Maybe we're even scared of other Christians and we're worried that we'll be called a holy roller if we're seen about town sharing the gospel. We're worried that living missionally will put us at odds with the people around us and that we may get hurt. Or worse yet, maybe we simply don't care enough about being missional. The idea doesn't appeal to us because we have not fallen in love with God and his gospel message to the extent that we want to share it with anyone who will listen. Maybe we've become too apathetic, and we don't care enough to be distracted from our lives and our worldly pleasures and pursuits. We may not even be aware of how comfortable we've gotten, and we've passively allowed comforts and distractions like Netflix or other hobbies to distract us too much from the task that God has placed before us. Whatever the reason, we who call ourselves Christian need to recognize that God is calling us to take risks for the kingdom. We must avoid the pitfalls of the wicked servant. But how? The wicked servant points to a reality or to a way of operating that isn't what God is asking for until his return. He's pointing to what we should not do with the gifts that we have. Alternatively, the good servants model what it means to effectively live for Jesus while we wait for his return. One servant is given five talents, and the other is given two based on their abilities. Now, we may wrestle with what those abilities are. Some would say, well, it's natural abilities. Some would say, no, it's actually spiritual gifts. Whatever they are, these abilities, it is clear that God has given us the message of the gospel and a knowledge of the gospel in proportion to our gifts and that these servants have actually doubled the investment they've been given. That's the point, to double the investment we've been given in proportion to our gifts. The other thing you'll notice in this text is that these servants left immediately or at once to go about the work that they've been tasked with, to go about getting an investment on the money they've been entrusted with. Unlike the wicked servant, these men know they're given an awesome opportunity and they capitalize on it. They get to work getting a return on the money that they've entrusted with. They're not crippled by fear. They're not waiting around for the master's return. They know how serious the task is and they are planning to be ready. They feel empowered by the resources that they've been given. They trust the character and goodness of their master and they joyfully go about their task. Now at this point, it may be easy to focus on these servants and think to ourselves, man, these must be really godly, capable servants. They must have it all together and have figured it out. They must have the right gifts to share the gospel, but that's paying attention to the wrong character of the show. You see, the master is the center of this plot. The master is the one we should focus on. You see, if the wicked servant was right in his estimation of the master, then the good servants would behave similarly. They would think to themselves, why would I get a return on the investment this master's given me? He's cruel. He's harsh. I don't like him. I am not going to get money. They would bury their money in the ground too. But these two servants have estimated well who this master is. They know that he is good and they honor their master by getting an investment or return on their investment. And the rest of this story proves this sentiment to be true. The master comes home and lavishes praise and encouragement on these servants. And then he says they can keep the money they've been given, and he gives them more to do in building the kingdom. Now, at first, we think about this, and many of us who have lots of responsibilities on our plates with work or with children or whatever else is in our world to cause us to be busy, we think, that's not a great reward. The master gives them more to be in charge of, makes them in charge of more of their estate. But Jesus is hinting at a pretty profound reality here. Jesus is suggesting that it's actually a joyful work to be a part of building the kingdom. It's actually an exciting thing to see the kingdom expand and to have a part to play in that work. Beyond it just being fulfilling and joyful to see the kingdom expand as a result of God's work through you, if the other parables are correct, these servants will have an opportunity to feast and celebrate with God. The master says, Come share in my master's happiness. These servants, because they took the investment they were given and they doubled it, they have the joy of being a part of seeing the kingdom expand and to relish its fruits, to see God's work come about. The master gives his servants the power they need to do the work that they're called to do, to do the work of the kingdom. He gave them a goal and a purpose that is worth celebrating. Not only did he empower them and give them purpose, he rewards them as if they were princes. Being the child of immigrants, it was common for my family to have relatives over during the summer. And if we had a relative over for the first time, there were three things they needed to experience when they visited us here in Ontario. The first thing was KFC. Don't ask me why, but apparently my relatives needed to experience fried chicken. It was a reality. The second thing was to go and check out Niagara Falls. Makes sense. Beautiful. Third thing, the CN Tower. And ordinarily, I wasn't invited on these trips because um, I was in school or I had work to do. But there was this one occasion where I was allowed to go. And I remember going to the CN Tower and getting to the top and being excited to check out this glass floor that my dad had told me about. So I run up to the edge of this glass floor, and I'm like, I, pause, I freeze. I hesitate right in front of that glass floor. And I'm about to step on it, and I'm like, I don't know. My dad, he sees me hesitate, and he goes, look, Bart, that glass is super, super thick. Like, you could jump on it, and you won't go through. You'll be fine. So I kind of test it out hesitantly. I walk on it a little bit, and you know how young boys are. Eventually, I start jumping on it to see if it will, in fact, crack or do something exciting. It's amazing what a bit of trust and a bit of understanding does in a situation like that. The deeper reality is that I trusted my dad. I knew that he wouldn't lie to me. I knew that I could act on the intel that he provided me. And so it is with Jesus in this parable. We as Christians are being asked if we trust Jesus enough to share the gospel message that he has given us. Do we trust that we are empowered to see a return on the investment that Jesus has placed in us? Do we trust that God is good and he will indeed reward our efforts? See, God has given us all the talents of the gospel message. Through the Holy Spirit, he's enabled us to use our gifts and abilities to share the knowledge we've been given. Why? Because God wants us to find purpose, meaning, and joy in seeing the kingdom expand and being a part of building the kingdom of heaven. Could he do it without us? Sure. Instead, by his grace, he chooses to use us. And we're not alone in this endeavor either. Not only are we empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we have an example to follow in Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up everything for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom. Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 2 sums it up very well. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus found joy in seeing the kingdom expand. And it's this reality in part which motivated him to go to that cross and die for our sake. We can follow his ultimate example and we can find joy in being a part of building the kingdom. Because Jesus has done a work in pioneering and protecting our faith. And he's provided a model for us so that we can run the race. The truth is that being on mission for the sake of the gospel is very rewarding. It's a joyful task, despite what we may think. It may seem counterintuitive that, that sharing the gospel and being part of Kingdom Expansion, it seems stressful to us, it makes us nervous, it scares us, but it's actually a joyful task to see God do work in the lives of people around us. It's a joy to eventually, in this life or the next, to see A reward for our efforts, to see a return on our investments. The Holy Spirit empowers us to carry out the kingdom's expansion, and He gives our lives meaning as we share the gospel, and He provides joy despite circumstances. Paul knew this joy well. No matter what happened, whether he was shipwrecked, beaten, abused, he said that he found joy in every circumstance because he knew that he was a part of the kingdom's expansion. And he was doing what his Lord had asked him to do. So next time, when we go out our front doors and we see that friendly neighbor and wave at them, instead of waving and saying hi and moving on with our day, maybe we need to strike up a conversation and share the joy that we have in Jesus Maybe instead of keeping our faith to ourselves in our friend group, we can offer to pray with someone when they are in crisis. If we find ourselves only surrounded by Christians, maybe we need to pray that God would bring people along our path to share our faith with. If courage is our problem, and we don't know how to start a conversation about Jesus, we need to pray that we would fall more in love with Jesus and become enamored and gripped by the gospel message in such a way that it comes out of our every pore. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us in whatever way he sees fit to share the gospel message of Jesus, especially during COVID, when more creativity and energy are required. There's a story in the beginning of Acts 16 in which Paul and his companions are on a missionary journey to Asia Minor. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, interrupts their efforts and says, no, actually, through a dream, you need to go to Macedonia. What this story demonstrates is the fact that God has prepared some to receive the gospel message. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our endeavors, guide our efforts, to lead us to people who are ready to receive the gospel message. Paul was led to Macedonia because those people were ready at that time to receive the gospel. And it's not that those in Asia Minor weren't they do eventually hear the gospel as well. But the Holy Spirit guides us as to how we can go about sharing the gospel message. It guides us as to who we need to share our faith with, who is ready to receive the gospel message, who the Holy Spirit has already been working on to prepare for the gospel message. As we embrace this task, we'll find that there's deep joy in sharing the gospel that God is, with the people that God has prepared to hear it. This parable is deeply convicting and challenging. The truth is is it demonstrates we cannot be passive about our faith. We cannot keep it to ourselves. We cannot give in to fear or worldly desires. If we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, we must take the talents of the gospel message and invest them. To do this well, we cannot rely on our own strength. We must fall in love with Jesus in such a way that that love motivates our efforts. It's his love working in us through the power of the Holy Spirit that will reap a harvest a hundredfold. We are empowered risk takers. Let us live out of that identity. For you who live in Exeter, my prayer for you and for all the churches worldwide is that we would recognize our identity as empowered risk takers and that we would take the gifts we've been given and boldly share the gospel, not because we wanna do it out of guilt or fear, but because we recognize that we have a lot we owe God and because we wanna be a part of the joy of seeing the kingdom expand. I hope and pray that God would use this church to share the gospel in Exeter and beyond. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. Lord, I know that while studying this passage for myself, I felt deeply convicted. It's it's so obvious that you have given us a task. And it's not a task that's meant to to be a drudgery or intimidating. It's meant to be motivated out of our love for you, out of our gratitude for what you've done for us. And so, God, I pray that even now, as we're praying, and we're in our homes, and we're separated, that your spirit would be stirring in our hearts, that you'd be whispering to our hearts who we need to reach out to. I pray that your spirit would be revealing who is ready to hear the gospel message. Lord, I pray that if we hear nothing, we would continue to come to you in prayer and ask you to give us the tools and the abilities and the foresight necessary to share our faith, especially during COVID when it's harder, when we can't see people in person easily. Lord, that is not a barrier to you, and you can go over that barrier. You can enable us to break through those barriers. And so, God, I pray by your Spirit that you would guide us in sharing the gospel message with the people around us, with the people that you have prepared. Give us courage to be obedient, and if we struggle with that, help us to fall more and more in love with you, so much so that we can't help but share the truth of Scripture out of every fiber of our being. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.